Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Sometimes, one of the most interesting things to reflect upon is not so much when something works, but when it doesn't. So it was that I found myself particularly fascinated by listening to the renowned Queen Mary University of London intellectual historian Quentin Skinner describe his long and circuitous road to developing his influential neo-Roman notion of freedom, together with its relevance for our contemporary world. But there's a vital associated point here, as Quentin also indicates, that while many historians are naturally engaged in interpreting how we got to our present state, it's equally essential to regularly investigate past ideas that haven't taken hold, intriguing concepts and pathways that have been, for particular historically contingent reasons, suppressed, overlooked, or flat-out ignored, but are nonetheless very much worth paying attention to. Let me begin perhaps by just asking you a personal question mm. about liberty and your interest in political liberty and so forth. How did, how did that begin for you? How did, how did you start? Well, it began with historical work that I was doing when I was writing my first book, which was called The Foundations of Modern Political Thought. I was working on questions about Renaissance moral and political philosophy and came upon some ideas that really, frankly, puzzled me because I was assuming, I see now, that there would be great continuity in thinking about questions about freedom and citizenship. And there weren't because I was coming upon a view which suggested that you could not be a free citizen unless you were a politically engaged citizen. So something was being strongly affirmed, especially in a writer like Machiavelli in the Discorsi, which seemed the opposite of what our intuitions would be, which is that freedom should be thought of mainly in terms of rights. And fundamental rights include rights to be left alone, so far as is compatible with a good legal order, getting on with one's life in the way that one chooses. So the notion that freedom would involve action, which would not be strongly chosen action, but would be almost obligatory, was a paradox that Mm. I came upon and couldn't at that time properly resolve. When you first first saw this, did it make you think of uh, of the of the ideology of Roman times immediately? Did you think of Cicero and, and the, the, the sense that an engaged, it's the duty of any uh, high-born or, or at least sufficiently capable free citizen of Rome to be participating in the, uh, in the welfare of, of his state? Was, did, did, did that come to your mind immediately or, or, or did, it, did it take a little bit longer before? Well, or did it not come that way at all? Uh, it should have come that way. And I certainly looked to antiquity because they were all looking to antiquity, but I looked in the wrong place. What I thought I was bound to be driven back to was an Aristotelian understanding of citizenship, in which, to paraphrase very strongly, um, Aristotle wants us to suppose 
that human nature has an essence. And I suppose we don't completely disagree with that. We talk about actions as inhuman and so forth. But this human essence for him was political. So as he says in the famous phrase, man is the political animal. And so I thought that what I was reading was a revival of this idea that there is a kind of essence to human nature, that the essence is political. And then the strong claim, which is almost on the edge of sense, that what it is to be a free person, especially what it is to be a citizen, is to realize those capacities, to realize those particular powers, because those are your distinctively human powers. Right. So the potentiality of, the, of what it means to be human, according exactly to this definition. Exactly that. Exactly. So that freedom comes to be seen as the name of a kind of moral achievement, where you have it in you to become something. And the free person is the person who realizes those potentialities. Now, that's recognizably a Greek way of thinking about the relationship of potentiality to power. And uh, of course, that's also a view of freedom, which is at large in our own day. And I think that must have helped me to go on the wrong track. Because um, when I was growing up, the, the, the um, philosopher who, above all, had made that their view about freedom was Hannah Arendt especially in the essays in Between Past and Future, when she talks about freedom and politics. And for her, freedom just is politics. That's to say the democratic project of people being thoroughly engaged as citizens is an instantiation and a declaration of freedom. So I started to think that that was what I was confronting. But the more I read, the more I saw that the claim that was being made was a causal claim. And that seemed um, in a way more intuitive when I thought about it, which was the claim seemed to be if you want to remain free as a citizen, then it's a causal condition of the maintenance of that freedom that you should actively participate in the life of your community. Of course, that's not such an unusual thing for Machiavelli to be. Not at all. To be to be Quite saying, so, given, yes. given his circumstances. That's right. Well, of course, it is um, a view about the relationship of freedom to self-government. So uh, the second phase in my interest in these questions arose when I was invited to give something called the Tanner Lectures at Harvard University. And this was very shortly after I'd published my first book, which came out in 1978. So I must have been asked to give these lectures sometime in the very early 1980s. I delivered them in 1980. Four, I think, uh, and I gave a series of lectures called The Paradoxes of Political Liberty, in which I offered this kind of stoic paradox that freedom was seen as service. And I tried to work through the causal account of that that I'd arrived at. But I wasn't very satisfied with that. I didn't think it was wrong, but it had left me feeling that I hadn't really understood what the underlying view of freedom was. So then I went on to other phases of my research and I didn't come back to this question until some time later when I was working again on Renaissance thought. And that was in the early 90s. And I had a great stroke of luck at that time, which was that I was at the Australian National University on a research fellowship. And an old friend of mine, Philip Pettit, who now teaches at Princeton University, was then in the research school of social sciences and was working on questions about freedom. 
and he and I taught a seminar together. And I would want to say that I think it was Philip who had the insight completely squarely that I had been casting around for some time before, which was that what makes sense of all of these things that I've so far said is that when these Republican writers of the Renaissance and early modern period talk about freedom, they just don't mean anything like how we would understand the concept. Now, of course, an historian should have been having that insight, and I could see that it wasn't fitting together. But Phillips supplied a version of what I've come to think is fundamental to this, as I want to call it, neo-Roman way of thinking about freedom. And that was to say that whereas for us the natural way of thinking about political liberty, civil freedom in any kind, is to think of it as de facto, that's to say, are you now free to do something or to refrain from doing it, is simply a question about whether anyone else is interfering with your exercise of your powers. So it's de facto just in the sense that if no one is stopping you from doing something, right. and if you have the power to do that thing, um, if you also choose to do it, that's a free choice and the resulting action is a free action. So that's a very natural way for us to think about freedom. In fact, it's the standard way we think about freedom. The writers I was studying were not thinking about freedom in that way at all. Now, Philip Pettit wrote a brilliant book, and now a classic, published uh, in 1997, the same year that I published my little book called Liberty Before Liberalism. His was called Republicanism. And he proposed a view which wasn't quite the view that I eventually wanted to put forward, but it helped me tremendously on my way, which was that we should distinguish freedom understood as non-interference, as he wanted to call it, from freedom understood as non-domination. So he wanted a very, strong, a very strong symmetry between two different ways of thinking about negative liberty. They're both ways of thinking of liberty as a negative concept, by which I think we mean simply that the presence of freedom is always recognizable by an absence. So the liberal understanding of freedom is that the absence that always marks the presence of freedom is absence of, as he wants to say, interference. Whereas the presence that marks the absence of liberty understood in what he calls republican terms would be absence of domination. Now, I understand, because of course Philip is a philosopher rather than an intellectual historian, that he liked very much this symmetry and he wanted to bring the two stories strongly together while contrasting them. It seemed to me, and writing about the issue at the same time as I was doing in my little book, that actually the contrast was very dramatically much wider than that formulation might lead one to think. And that really what the writers I was finding in the Renaissance and then back to Roman as opposed to Greek antiquity wanted to say is, to put it anachronistically for a moment, that freedom should not be understood as a predicate of actions, essentially, at all. Freedom is the name of a status. That's what they wanted us to understand. And their emphasis was not on whether I'm free to do this or that. Of course, that was important to them. But what was fundamental to them was, do you have the status of being a free person? That's the question they're asking. Uh, and once I saw that, I was taken back into 
the most formative text of all for this way of thinking about freedom, which is the, the Roman law. The Roman law begins by wanting to set up a distinction between two sorts of persons. Because it is a law code, it is asking who is subject to law. Now, it's also a slave society, so not everyone is subject to law. Only citizens are subject to law. So the question for them, since a citizen is free ex hypothesi, by contrast with being a slave, is what makes a slave a slave? Because if you understand what makes a slave, you will understand what it is to be a free person, because to be a free person not is to be that. not to be a slave, right. exactly. So the answer that's given in the Roman law to what it is to be a liber homo, as they say, using a word we don't have in the English language, homo, meaning man or woman, what it is to be a free man or woman is, just as you would expect, it is not to be dependent upon the arbitrary will of anyone else. Because what it is to be a slave is exactly to be wholly dependent upon the arbitrary will of somebody else. Now, that's a very deep thought about freedom because it gets round a paradox which liberal political philosophy often gets into, which is um, if freedom is simply absence of interference, what makes the slave unfree? Because there could be a slave who, because the master is benign or absent, is not interfered with in what he or she chooses to do. So what makes them a slave? Right. But it's not a puzzle. It's only a puzzle. If, if you, you think look at it from that context. Exactly. You've made it into a puzzle by giving what this tradition would think is a very shallow analysis of the concept of freedom, making it exclusively a predicate of actions, whereas what you should think of is that it's fundamentally about a human status, and it's the status of not being a dependent. And, and that brings up what I interpret reading your works as a key point, which is to say to embed this sense of freedom within a larger society. Mm. And from uh, that is to say, if you just look at freedom as being liberated from or reduced from any external constraints, mm. this notion of, a, of, of a, almost a naturalistic way of looking oh, at it. Oh, absolutely. That, that, okay, you're not holding me or you're not binding absolutely. me, and so that I can go off in my particular direction. One can imagine freedom being defined independent of whatever the state happens to be, uh, because there are laws and the laws are Definitely. created somehow in some abstract context. And then one is either free or not free, depending on those particular, uh, that, that evaluation of that, that specific criterion. But if you look at it in this, uh, in this sense of what it means somehow to be a free person, yes. that it seems to me uh, naturally, and my, my thoughts I hope you agree with them because they're, they're based largely on my interpretation of what you wrote, so you should actually agree with them. But my understanding is that this means um, that one is looking at uh, the status of people as being free or not free vis-a-vis -vis their societal Absolutely. status, and thus you can start making claims that have some degree of sense, some degree of semantic content as to what a free state is or is not. Is this is absolutely fundamental. I could put your point the other way around and say that once I'd come to this realization, it seemed to me that there is something very strange, indeed even fantastical, about the way that contemporary liberal political philosophy has set up the question of freedom and the state. So if you take the kind of liberal political theory that moves in a very strongly libertarian direction, as it tends to do uh, in 
contemporary American political theory, then to take a classic instance, Robert Nozick's book of 1974, Anarchy, State and Utopia, begins with the individual who is a possessor of rights. And this, this person's freedom, of course, is a right and the means to other rights. Now, freedom is understood in that text as absence of coercion. So let's now think about the state. How does a state characteristically act? It doesn't usually limit our freedom by, as you say, physically taking hold of us. So there may be a moment, of course, in a court of law where you're handcuffed and someone has taken away your freedom of movement. But that's not, of course, the paradigm of how states operate. The paradigm is that states have laws, and laws have penalties attached to the breach of those laws, and the aspiration of the legislature is to make you more frightened of the consequences of disobedience than of the proneness to disobedience that you might otherwise have. So that bends the will, as Jeremy Bentham liked to put it, and a bending of the will is obviously a limiting of choice. So there is your freedom being taken away. So in the way that it's set up in this liberal model, the state is the immediate and automatic enemy of freedom. Because freedom is absence of coercion, but the state is a coercive apparatus. Right. And so there's a continual disposition, which Nozick illustrates very well through his book, of this kind of liberal political theory to become anarchist. Because thinking now about the state, the first thing you're likely to think is, well, is that a legal institution at all? Because freedom is a fundamental value for me. It's a right and a means to rights. And they're taking it away. And they're taking it away. But that is a fantasy of the way that we should set up thinking about freedom. Because actually, most of what we talk about when we talk about rights presupposes the state. And the power of this completely different alternative way of thinking about freedom and what's fundamental about it is that we are in the state. Otherwise, we're in this state of nature, as it were. So. Well, yes, we're in a fantasy state of nature. Right. It's not a sociological condition, it's just a, right. a thought it's experiment. A thought experiment, exactly. Yes. Right. Now, I, I do want to say something where I'm likely to be misunderstood, because you pick it up very beautifully in your comments. I am not sitting here in order to tell you that if you now handcuff me, you haven't taken away an element of my freedom. Of course not. Uh, so, uh, if we were to get up from our conversation and find that this door was locked, then we would not be free to leave the room. We would have the power, but somebody unknown to us has taken that power away. Of course, we're unfree to leave, whereas we had that power counterfactually, so it's been taken away from us. What the writers I'm interested in want to say is, well, we're not denying that. What we're denying is that that's what's fundamental about freedom. That's making it a predicate of actions, but it's the name of a status. Fundamentally, it's not a predicate of actions. Right. It's the name of a status. Hmm. So, um, you've, you've had this breakthrough in your understanding. You've had this epiphany, as it were. Yeah. Um, and from your writings, one of the things that, that I could... Uh, that I could gauge that, 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 that captivated me was notwithstanding that, notwithstanding this uh, clear penetration of what these Renaissance authors were, were saying and, and how that was linked to the classical view, mm. um, th these ideas, although they cropped up in various different incarnations over the ages, over history, eventually were replaced 
by our classical liberal understanding. And so it was as if there was this, um, if one looks historically, it was as if there was this war going on, as it were, between, yes. between two fundamental ideas of, of freedom. One as, as this, uh, this, this basic predicate to action, as you were saying, and the other is more in this sense of, of almost naturalistic, physical, inhibitory yes. sense of your, of your freedom. And, and, and there are times when um, this neo-Roman or Republican view, this predicate to action view, uh, was to the fore, and, and that, of course, was, uh, that had arisen through historical circumstances in the English Civil War. There were people who were advocating this, this sense as a way of uh, justifying the elimination of the monarchy and yes, the Republican yes. movement. And then there were, so you chart this throughout history yes, and, and yes. You, you draw links between these two different streams. And the claim is that, uh, that eventually this classical liberal view of freedom really being represented by um, an impediment to action uh, was victorious. And yes. in fact, it was so victorious that it, it uh, and you quote Isaiah Berlin at some point, that yeah. it, it was as if it was impossible to even contemplate uh, any, other, any other view yes. of that. So um, uh, I wanted to ask you, well, first of all, is that, is that a fair depiction before I go on, or, or am I missing something? Am I... No, I think that's a very fair outline. It seems to me, let me respond a little bit to exactly that point, that the history, um, as I see it, is one of very strong contestation in the early modern period. And the gradual disappearance as a candidate for thinking about freedom of the neo-Roman view that it's the name of a status and its replacement by the, as it were now, liberal understanding of freedom as simply um, non-interference with actions. Yes, there is an historical story to be told about that. And that is roughly how I see it. So I'm reading this and I think, I'm not a political philosopher. Uh, I don't even know very many political philosophers. <laughs> um, Quentin Skinner tells me that this view is the triumphant view. And this is the way uh, that, that people now regard freedom in this space. And I think, well, hang on a minute. If I turn on CNN or if I turn on the news, people will talk um, in such a way as if they are very often equating political freedom with democracy. Yes. With, uh, with this notion of how a state is being governed. So in that sense, it seems to me that uh, it, it's, not, it's not my understanding that, uh, at least on the, as the men on the street, there is a clear link between our sense of freedom and a particular type of government. I mean, again, yes. let, me, let me just back up and see if I can phrase yes. things correctly according to what I understand. So the classic liberal understanding is, look, government makes the laws. Yes. It doesn't really make any difference how the laws are being made in terms of our definition of freedom. Government makes the laws. These are the laws which uh, define, uh, define our freedom in terms of whether or not we conform with those laws or whether we don't, or as Hobbes would say, whether we form a covenant with these particular laws, whether yes. we buy into these laws. And insofar as we allow these laws to constrain us, then we are limiting our freedom vis-a-vis -vis these particular laws, and we all live in society with these laws. And that's, that's what it means to be free. It's not this sense of whether we are free by disposition or free within the sen sense of a free state or anything mm. like that. It's just our sense of being free with respect to these laws. But again, 
So if, and, and that claim, as I understand it, has been uh, sufficiently successful in terms of its uh, acceptance that people even question how you can look at freedom in any other way. So if that's yeah. the claim, then I say, okay, well, hang on, I turn on CNN, and they're saying things like, we have to make the world safe for democracy, and yes. this is the only way to uh, protect your freedom. And we look at other states around the world, at least we not being political philosophers, which was how I opened this, but the mm. general public, we do make this equivalence mm. between uh, a sense of freedom and mm. a particular form of government. Is yes. that, so, so maybe it's not as... Maybe at least in the worlds I travel in, it's not quite as universally accepted. Yes, that's very interesting. I would certainly want to say uh, that you're absolutely right to stress that a distinction between, um, let me call it the liberal view, it's a slight parody, by contrast with the neo-Roman view, is that the former is not very interested in the relation of liberty to forms of government, and the, the latter thinks that there is one canonical form of government, namely democracy, which alone delivers freedom. Now, what I'm struck by in talk about the relations of freedom and democracy in this country is that the freedom which is prized is the freedom to be left alone to do what you want. And democracy is prized as a form of government that will enable that to happen. So he governs best who governs least. So it's a democratic framework, but the aspiration that people have within that framework is to maximize their freedom of action. Now, what solved for me the problem that I started out with in my research all those years ago, just to recapitulate it, that I was reading people who were saying, unless you are yourself active in the political sphere, this will be dangerous to your own liberty. These are the real Democrats, because what they're saying is there's a canonical form of government, which is self-government. And the reason that that alone secures your freedom is don't forget that what your freedom is, is not being subject to arbitrary power as a member of a civil association. Now, how can you minimize arbitrary power? Well, only by making, in some way, the law be a reflection of your will, or at least of your represented will. If you can see in the law either your will or a representation of it, then in obeying the law, you are obeying your will. And so there's a sense in which you are free in obeying the law, namely that it's the law that you think right. there should be. It's, it's your law. It's okay. your law. So autonomos, the Greek gives it all. You're giving the law to yourself. That's what it is to be autonomous. You give the law to yourself. Right. Now, within what political framework can you give the law to yourself? Only a framework in which you are able actively to participate or to participate by representation in a deliberative and representative series of assemblies which are the sole source of law. That alone does it. So that is why in the Roman Republican and then in the Renaissance Republican understandings of the state, what you have to see is that it's this view of freedom which is being claimed requires a particular state. So what exact state, one might then ask, does it require? And they're very clear, it has to have two conditions attached to it. One is only law must rule. There must be no discretionary powers. There must be no executive powers that can simply be invoked. Right. There must be no royal prerogative where the will of the monarch suddenly becomes the law. All discretionary powers are arbitrary because they're somebody's will. But they have to be my will or my represented will. So they are all excluded. They enslave. 
So only the law's rule. And secondly, as I've already said, I must be able to see my will in the law. Right. So what this mandates is a particular form of very active democratic citizenship as a condition of upholding freedom. But not as a condition of upholding freedom as being left alone to do whatever I want. The freedom that is being upheld is freedom from arbitrary power. Right. Because if you're not free from arbitrary power, you don't have freedom in the absolutely fundamental sense. And, and, yes. So I was just going to say, this is a point that, that uh, you highlight, uh, I think, very clearly. Because this arbitrary power doesn't actually have to be used. It just has to exist in potential that it, that it could be used. Mm. And, and, and there seems to be a sense uh, from your writings that if it, exists, if it exists in potential, that to some degree rots the society from within, because then you get these sycophants, you get these courtiers in a monarchy, you, you, yes. you have people who, who are, uh, and one could imagine something similar happening in a democracy. If something could be, could be perverted, if the laws could be perverted according to arbitrary will, yes. then you have this uh, superstructure in the society which, which threatens to, uh, well, which, which I guess by this definition threatens the freedom of, yeah. uh, of individuals. This is there. absolutely right. And, and I think this is really fundamental. Another way of putting this, and it brings out the contrast that I'm interested in between the liberal understanding and this other way of thinking about it, um, is to insist that freedom is not de facto. Earlier in our conversation, we were saying the liberal view is that freedom is a de facto idea. The question is, is somebody now stopping you from doing something? If, if you're not, and it's a power of yours, then you're free to do it. Right. What the other theory is trying to get you to see is the hidden operations of power to constrain us. They are not de facto. These hidden operations of power don't actually have to operate for us to be less free. And I think to make that clear, I ought to say a little bit more about how this notion of not being subject to arbitrary power fills out. Because what they want to say about the person who is subject to the arbitrary will of somebody else is, well, first of all, this person is a slave. That is what the, the Roman writers want to say. So that would for us be a metaphor. We're not talking about chattel slavery, but we are talking about what these writers would speak of as living like a slave in certain domains of your life. Now, how do they make that rather melodramatic claim come good? The answer is in two ways. I mean, first is a kind of metaphysical point, but it's one that's very important. If you are dependent on somebody else's will, it doesn't even have to be the case that you're aware of that. This is a point you've just made. That's absolutely fundamental. You could be a slave without knowing it. So, for example, in a slave society, you could be born a slave. You don't know you're a slave, but you are. Now, it's perfectly true that you couldn't be a slave for long in any domain of your life without coming to see that. But the first point that they want to make is that in that existential condition, no action of yours is ever freely performed. Because an, an action freely performed in our ordinary way of thinking about this way is an action performed according to your will. And a free choice is the choice that you will. Of course, this may all be determined, and uh, we're not talking here about determinism, but it's a compatibilist view that the experience of having these capacities to choose is existential. So the first thought is that's one criterion for being 
um, able to choose and act freely. And it's not merely necessary, it's sufficient. Now, if you are subject to arbitrary power, there's always going to be a second criterion for you being able to act, which is that the person with arbitrary power to stop you has chosen not to exercise that arbitrary power. Right. It's always there. They could always exercise it. And it's their choice. And it's their choice. And they can exercise that choice with impunity, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. So when you act, you have this illusion of freedom, which is actually um, based upon the non-exercise of hidden power. And what I want to alert us to in our own society is the extent to which there are these hidden powers. Uh, that sounds paranoid, but that there are these arbitrary powers which um, mean that much of what we do is only done with permission. But uh, I, I don't think it's paranoid, uh, and, and here's why. Because if you, if you look at this in a modern context, and you look at what we call democracies in this day and age, and you ask how are the laws actually made, and who is really in charge, and mm. is, there something, is there something analogous to sycophancy of the courtiers to the, to the, to the king in our present day mm. uh, uh, democracy, whether yeah. it's political action committees, or yeah, whether, very whether, it's, yeah. whether it's individuals with large sums of money who would be donors to political parties, yeah. or what have you. You could, you, you could make a judgment as to, by this definition, you could make a judgment as to the amount of freedom that exists uh, in this context, even in democratic society. Oh, very much so. And then you could look at a, at a country like China right now, or you could look at other countries where laws are being made. And if you, again, go deeper and further than just saying there are laws, are the laws actually being applied? What, what are the individual liberties vis-a-vis uh, -vis these external constraints that citizens have? And you start asking questions about, well, how do those laws get made? How yes. can you instantiate environmental legislation in China right now? What is the process by Very which good. that actually mm. happens? Mm. Or maybe all their laws are arbitrary. Right. And, 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 and so you're, um, it seems to me that these questions are very, very topical and, yes. and, and quite, um, quite pertinent to a large number of questions of civil liberties that are actually happening in contemporary America and in contemporary Asia and, and, and so yeah. forth. Well, I hope so. And these are very apropos remarks. They enable me to move on from the first to the second of the points I would want to make about spelling out this notion of freedom as absence of arbitrary power. So the first point I was talking about was actually you never act autonomously if there is identifiable arbitrary power. But the second point is the one that you've now just made. It's not likely that if you are dependent upon someone in any domain of your life, you will live for long without coming to recognize that and the implications of that. I mean, suppose, since we're sitting in the middle of an American university, um, you're a junior professor without tenure. Hmm. It's very hard to imagine that that doesn't in some way affect your character in every and way. I a whole imagine. range of the, your actions towards your superiors, towards your peers. So this is all summarized in a rather brutal epigram in the classical writers, especially in the Roman writers, by saying slaves are slavish. If, how can you not be slavish if you're a slave? It's a character-forming horror. So the idea that if you live in servitude, you will find that you're a servile character is one that they're very keen on. It's almost impossible for that not to be the case. Mm. So here's the thought. In relation to these hidden exercises of power, 
And this is the horror of slavery, even living like a slave just in some domain of your life, it's the horror, is you don't know what might happen. And that's going to be true if the laws are made arbitrarily. So I guess that this must be something that happens a lot in China. The laws are made not in a democratic fashion, but they are uh, the will of a party which is imposing it on the country. Um, you don't always know, I imagine, what might happen to you if you were to speak out. Maybe nothing, but you don't know. But if you don't know, you won't speak out, or you'll be a very, very brave person if you do. That must be the position, somewhat modified and less serious perhaps, of the assistant professor without tenure. Mm. But um, do I speak out? The chair in the department has just summoned a meeting and has talked nonsense. Do I say, but this is nonsense? Mm. Um, well, um, you, you think about it. There's something, as you're speaking, there's something that's even more insidious and perhaps cancerous about the structure. Again, let's pick on the assistant professor <laughs> uh, aiming for tenure. And that is that once, once this professor gets tenure, there seems to be an additional motivation to ensure that the system doesn't change and that, that that whole servility and state of servility is imposed on the future generation. Yes. There is this, there yes. this self-perpetuating nature to yes. this, that I went through this and you have to go through this too, you yes. have to learn your... Well, that would be a great professional deformation. I can imagine it. But I think the general structure of what we're talking about is an affront to freedom. Yes. And it's an affront to freedom in this silent way, because what is the mechanism that we're talking about here? It is self-censorship. But self-censorship is, of course, censorship. It's a form of censorship. Indeed. And this is what I mean by saying that the operations of power that worry me are the silent ones that stem from the fact that those with arbitrary power over us don't even have to make it clear to us that they have this power and could exercise it. We know that, and they know that we know. So it affects how people conduct themselves all the time. It's systemic. And that seems to me what's corrosive of freedom. Yes. So I know this is not your job, but I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit. So let's suppose that I am President Obama, because uh, the reason I want to bring it uh, to to more practical aspects, more contemporary aspects, yeah. is that I know that you have a strong set of beliefs about the, uh, and I'd like to explore those uh, in the moments ahead, of the, of the relevance and the impact of mm. historical thinking, that it's not, in your view, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not, in your view, something which just should be relegated to a static appreciation of what has happened in the past. That obviously has value, mm. but it has more value to understand the human condition and to think about how we might Mm. be able to interpret it, if not directly apply it to our contemporary lives. So, preamble over. I'm President Obama. I say, Quentin, congratulations. You're my Secretary of State because you're somebody who understands uh, uh, very deeply this idea of freedom. So help me make my way forwards in the contemporary world. Mm. What would you do or what might you do differently? Well, I am struck by the monarchical structures of American political society as I see it now. Mr. Obama is up against a terrible problem, which is a feature of the American Constitution, which is that it's hard to get anything systematic done. That can be presented as a glory of the American Constitution by contrast with the first post-past-the-post system such as we have 
in the United Kingdom, where you can, by contrast, get a social revolution put through, as was by Mrs. Thatcher, where the largest majority that ever voted for her was 30%, 37% of the people. That can't happen in the United States. We can get things done more, but not all the things that we get done are things that we should have wanted to get sure. done. Stalin got things done too. Yes. So the glory of the American Constitution is to make it difficult to get things done. But of course, there is a large reservoir of executive power that enables things to happen when the Congress won't enable them to happen. And of course, the great exponent of that was your greatest radical president, I suppose, was was Roosevelt and the number of executive orders by which he ruled, especially in the course of the war, was enormous. It must have run into the thousands, whereas Obama is still in the low hundreds. But there you have a problem for a democracy, and we have it in the United Kingdom in a somewhat different form, which is in the form of the royal prerogative. The royal prerogative uh, is, of course, in the hands of the executive for the time being, but it places enormous discretionary power in the hands of the prime minister. So, for example, when Britain was taken into war in Iraq by Tony Blair in 2003, he didn't ask the parliament, and he didn't have to ask the parliament. He did it, and he subsequently had a vote on it, but subsequent to he the vote. He didn't ask the Queen either, probably, I'm guessing. Um, well, he was of right exercising the royal prerogative of war and peace as um, the prime minister of the country. But the fact remains that that was an act of arbitrary power. So what we are talking about is two democracies which have enormous reserves of arbitrary power in them, where something can happen which, to take the Tony Blair case, because it was a very moving one, a million people walk through the centre of London with placards which say, not in our name. That's to say, this is, this is not a democratic right. procedure at all. These and are that, not our laws. The, these are not our laws. This isn't a law at all. Right. Uh, and that is more what you're saying, is that people have intuitions about this way of thinking about freedom, which I want people to bring out and think about much more. Yes, indeed, it was not in your name, because that's, this had not been passed by your representative will. They had no say in this, and nevertheless, this is the policy of the state, and of course, it was a disastrous policy. So one, one concrete measure would be to eliminate the royal prerogative, then? Yes, I don't know why this isn't a big issue in my country. Hmm. Um, and I think that uh, what my eminent colleague Jeremy Waldron calls the dignity of legislation is something that we have to think more about in democracies, that what's meant to rule is the represented will of the people. So that's one thing which worries me very much. So the state, which we absolutely need, and of course is the means to the freedom that we've been talking about, is perpetually liable to become the problem instead of the solution. The state's meant to be the solution, but we give it so much power that we can make it into the problem. That's the unavoidable paradox of the fact that we all live in states. But more than that, I worry about the fragility of states in relation to arbitrary powers to which they are subjected. I mean, consider the position of a third world country which is trying to attract internal investment, and then the corporations which wish to invest want to be able to set the terms of investment and employment, and maybe to be given a bit of leeway about environmental legislation. All of this happens. Why does it happen? Because they're totally dependent upon these people. Right. 
And the dependence can mean that things which are contrary to the common good of that community have to be done in order to attract the money to keep the community running. So again, the modern-day sycophancy relationship. Yes, it's a sycophancy relationship. And moreover, we could generalize that, I think, into a view about international relations. It seems to me that an, an honorable way of thinking about international relations would be to seek to minimize these sycophancy relations. That's to say, to seek to minimize the dependence upon the arbitrary will of extremely rich countries that must be the day-to-day -day experience of very poor countries. So that would, that would lead one to a greater sense of parity, a greater sense of, well, I guess, uh, national independence within perhaps a global decision-making structure. That would be the hope. I mean, it would be a moral aspiration. It would be a view of freedom, uh, a moral aspiration of the rich countries to minimize the extent to which their relationships with poor countries are actually of this arbitrary kind. So I'm trying to see freedom entirely at its foundation as a question about how to avoid arbitrary power. And if we go back to the model of the politics that this would generate, notice that it would be a politics in which each person is by the state, which would have to help to do this, liberated from exercise of arbitrary power within their lives. So some of these forms of arbitrary power have got much worse during my own lifetime. Mm. And one very important instance is the deunionization of workforces in the name of something called the free market. So there is a notion of freedom, but it's not the one that I'm talking to you about this afternoon. If you completely deunionize, of course, you can get more efficient workforces. But what you're also doing is making those workforces completely dependent right. upon you. So now consider the plight of um, migrant workforces, which may often also be people who are illegally in the country in which they are working. What chance have they of a decent wage? What chance have they of negotiating their wage? None at all. They're completely dependent upon someone who offers them work, and if they don't want it, then there's no negotiation about the terms of it. And in fact, they can manipulate them. I mean, this is like the grapes of wrath. It, dust, well, that's the, I mean, it looks awfully like that terrifying novel, yes. It seems to me that it is a shocking fact that in the name of freedom, we have increased dependence, because on my account, to increase dependence is to diminish freedom. And is this something, is this something that, that you feel, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is, is this something that you feel people are sufficiently aware of? Because it seems to me you, you, you alluded to the, let's say, the curious usage of the word free in this context with respect mm. to free market um, and, and the punishing effects that would have within this a uh, broader view of, a, of an actual diminishment or diminution, pardon me, of, of, of freedom. Um, my sense is that fewer and fewer people are aware of this. This is almost a mantra that people are, mm. are, are chanting, at least in the developed world. Very much that so. This, just, uh, this is the way of the future and that anybody who um, somehow believes anything to the contrary is just being willfully obdurate and, yes. and, and, and doesn't have any common sense and can't see, you know, this end of history view that this is necessarily Absolutely. the way that things, yes. where things are going. Is that, um, 
so let me see if I can ask a question because I have this tendency not to actually do that and ramble on incoherently. So let me ask you a question. Um, is it your view that the current economic crisis, uh, which was which was precipitated well, more than five years ago now, um, might be leading people to reconsider mm. these ideas and to be moving into the sorts of directions that you are uh, enunciating, or is that or is that not happening? Well, I think that the more I talk to people about thinking about freedom in this way, we've been talking in a rather abstract way, and that's very necessary to get clear about the concepts. But um, the idea that this is to capture something really fundamental about people's experience of freedom of choice um, has, I think, sorry, I've lost that sentence. Maybe we can scrub that. Just start that again, bit. just start again. Yes. What I'm wanting to say here is that I don't know if it's to be attributed to the crisis of 2008 and its aftermath, but the idea that what I've been talking about captures something absolutely fundamental about the experience of freedom of choice and being a free person is, I think, more prevalent. The more I talk to people about it, the more people feel, yes, I sort of see what you're saying. And one way in which this has come up very much recently is the discovery that we all made within the last year that both in the United Kingdom and in the United States, it's probable that agents of the state are reading all our emails. Now, this has been constructed in both these countries as a problem about privacy. And if you go back to President Obama, he has uh, honorably enough noted that it's an obvious affront to privacy. Nobody denies that. It's an affront to privacy if you read my sure. emails without my permission. Tautologically. Tautologically. But the, the payoff is security. Right. Now, I'm saying that's to phrase it wrongly. This is an affront to freedom. Because once I am aware that agents of the state may be reading all my emails, I may start to write a lot of very different emails. I may stop writing emails altogether. You may even start thinking differently. I, I will start thinking differently. I'll start thinking, what will happen if they read this? Right. Maybe I should rephrase this. Maybe I should leave that bit out. These are not questions about privacy. These are questions about freedom of speech. I'm having my freedom of speech taken away in a silent, insidious way that doesn't make it seem as if my freedom of speech is being taken away because nobody's stopping me. No one's interfering with my writing the emails I want. But right. that's to get the way of thinking about freedom just on the surface. Right. That surface stuff, what we're talking about is something much more fundamental, which is a democratic citizen thinking, well, I don't know if I can really say this anymore. And that's the point. I don't know. Right. That's what it is to live like a slave in a certain domain, which is you don't know what might happen to you. So that's a very concrete example. Exactly as you said, it's not as if you're being physically impeded or you're being coerced. No, nothing. Uh, but, but at the same time, the knowledge of this arbitrary nature does, does limit and, and, I'm sure and affect it does. your freedom. I'm sure it does. I don't do anything very sensitive and I'm not an important person, but if either of those were different, I'm sure I would not be using email in a great range of areas. Not because I know something terrible will happen to me, but because I don't know what might happen to me. But that is freedom being taken away. And that's what I, uh, I really want to stress, these silent operations of power in our democracies. Now, to go back to what you were saying about the great economic crisis, um, which I must say, I think, explodes libertarianism because, after all, who saved us from all begging in the streets? The states saved us. 
individual states came forward. I, I remember watching, I was living in the United States at the time, Mr. Bush coming forward. He didn't dare say the state is doing this, but he said, we've got to save our Commonwealth, we've got to save our Republic. What was happening was that states came forward as lenders of last resort. And without our permission, or indeed the permission of our grandchildren who are still going to be paying off this debt, they said, we'll face it. We'll simply take on that debt. If that, nobody else could say that. So what is all this hostility to the state in this kind of libertarianism? We're all living in states, and what we want to do is to make them properly democratic states. One of the powers of the theory that we're talking about this afternoon is that it connects freedom extremely strongly to equality. It says what it is to be a free citizen is to be equally free with all other citizens, to be able to have this sense of belonging such that I feel that the law is a representation of my will. It isn't, of course, literally my will, and I may be in a minority, but if I'm in a minority and I feel that the structure is right, I feel, well, you can't win everything. But I've got to be able to see my represented will in the law, and so have you. So we are equal citizens. We have equal rights in respect of the direction of the polity. Now, that is to say that we are instantiating freedom as non-dependence. But it is also to say that a political society that instantiates that value has instantiated social justice. Because what is social justice except the equal freedom of citizens in that way? So let me be devil's advocate and, and, and uh, pick up on this point in terms of social justice. Let's imagine a state where, um, which is fully democratic, and we can say that the will of the people is such that uh, everyone can feel that they are responsible for crafting the laws. It is their laws broadly defined. And let us imagine this is in the contemporary United States of America, where you happen to reside. Uh, I'm going temporarily, home soon. temporarily. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but let us or, or the United Kingdom. It really makes no difference. No. Um, but the laws that are arrived at these particular laws that are arrived at through this democratic and open process are that all intellectual historians shall be sent off to the gulags. Mm. So. Uh, this does not strike me as a law which uh, incorporates a very large measure of social justice, uh, not only because I like intellectual historians, but, but just uh, because I am appealing to a higher sense of, yes. of, of justice that goes beyond the so-called tyranny of the majority. And so of course. Forth. But in your view, uh, or at least in this, in this view of, uh, of, of what it means to be free in a, in a state where everyone has an equal role, these laws are passed. They can't be seen to be arbitrary according to one monarch who has decreed this. Mm -hmm. um, can I really define social justice this way? Because this seems a counterexample. Mm. Do you understand where I'm, where I'm going with I'm this? I absolutely understand it. And it raises a very big question for anyone who started to take this way of thinking about freedom and therefore uh, equal citizenship at all seriously. What institutions would we need to design to deliver this kind of equal freedom? The problem that democracy constantly faces is majoritarianism. And I spoke earlier about the Thatcherite social experiment, which permanently changed a number of crucial institutions of my society. I never voted for that. I didn't approve of it. I still think that uh, a lot of it was disastrous. My opinion was not asked. <laughs> so majoritarianism, of course, can be an enemy of freedom in the way that we're talking about. And your fantasy example would, of course, be particularly disturbing for me. 
Um, so the short answer to your doubt is, of course, the problem that we all face as Democrats, which is that prima facie democracy is simply a majoritarian creed, and we mustn't let it be so. So what are we saying? We are saying that the ideal constitution that would deliver freedom in the form I'm talking about it, and thus social justice, would have to have institutions that were not elective institutions. It would have to have agreed but non-elective supervising legal institutions which could do something to mitigate those dangers. And represent minority rights in this case? Are they, that's, the rights of the the that's the great issue, how to represent minority rights under a majoritarian system. And we, in this country, the Constitution is actually rather sensitive to that, less so in my country. But of course, if we were now designing the ideal constitution, that's one of the first things we would have to think about. Now, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but of course, one of the things that I've come to feel strongly in my recent thinking about this way of talking about freedom and social justice is we probably need a very different constitution. We probably need to think again about central features of our constitution and what kind of a freedom we are trying to instantiate. And by the way, it might be quite prudent to start thinking about this. In the name of a freedom which is understood as the freedom of markets to um, do whatever they need to produce rising living standards, the position has now been reached in this country that 20% of the entire wealth of the United States is owned by 1% of the population. This is an extraordinary level of social inequality. And it's similar in my country, much and, and more. And growing, growing worse, that it's, is to say. In both countries, it's very grave. And in both countries, it's growing worse. Now, there are several things we might want to ask about that. And one would be a very interesting question, which has been thrown up by a great deal of research, which has been done in Scandinavian countries which have much greater social equality, much higher levels of direct taxation, is that these countries regularly register a higher approval of their society by the citizens of that society mm. than do the United Kingdom or the United States. Mm. And in addition to those very interesting statistics, I mean, the latest statistics issued by the United Nations tell us that Denmark is the happiest country in the world. Well, it has a direct taxation rate in the 50s percentile. Uh, so that's quite interesting. But more interesting, perhaps, because not anecdotal, is all the economic research that's been done on the Nordic countries about the connection between economic equality and efficiency. So it may be that these uh, high and rising rates of economic inequality and the instinct to to prefer the preservation of economic rights over other different kinds of rights, which is true in the European Union, just as it's true in the United States. This may not be the way to go for efficiency. It's also worth just asking ourselves whether, if it continues at this rate, the social fabric may not begin to tear. So it's, it's interesting because you allude quite neatly, I think, to, to another point that you make. The, the danger of this lack of freedom in a, let me just call it, sycophantic relationship, arbitrary yeah. will, what yeah. have you, um, it is, there's a psychological uh, price to be paid, and there's presumably all sorts of offshoots of that. People are less creative, they're less secure, they won't be as productive, and all the rest of it. Mm. But there's another uh, very uh, significant danger that you, that you mention 
and underscore quite frequently, which is the existence of this arbitrary power very often is disconnected to the long-term interests of the state. Mm. And you mentioned earlier uh, aspects of everyone from Machiavelli to, to, to others who are, who are constantly talking about how to best proceed in order to have the greatest possible state. Now, the greatest possible state in mm. Renaissance Florence might be to be conquering other cities yeah. or whatever and, and, and in different places. But when you, when, you, when you start talking about Scandinavia, it's interesting because I started to think, well, um, it could well be that, uh, that because you have uh, a much greater empowerment, because you have much mm. less of this diminution of freedom mm. and you have greater equality, the interests of the largest body of people, of course, are served not only in terms of their own sense of freedom and entitlement, but also broadly economically. It is in the best interest of the state of Denmark to have a structure like this, yeah. where it is not in the best interest of the United States of America to have this sort of wealth inequality. It is only in the best interest of that tiny minority of people mm. to perpetuate that. Yeah. And so you see those symmetries very, very clearly. I agree with you. Well, what we have to face is that our countries, the United Kingdom and the United States, have become very oligarchic. Um, it's just not possible to imagine that um, the, the kind of inequalities which are not merely tolerated but which are growing in both our countries would not run into tremendous political pressure in the Scandinavian social democracies where notions of equality of citizenship are very strongly entrenched and where the rights that are entrenched are not merely or primarily or fundamentally economic rights but are rights of citizenship. Then it's a very interesting question about wh whether that may be more efficient but there's no doubt that it's more just. Right. And, and by many measures, if you'll allow me to use common parlance, just simply better. It's yes. Better, better to live it as a... <laughs> yes. Well, that is apparently what people feel. Yes. Uh, uh, so that if you take this, it's very fascinating, this happiness measure, which has been done in a quite sophisticated way in recent years. Um, neither the United Kingdom nor the United States are in the top ten if you ask people how happy they mm. are in living in the, in the society in which they're living. But all the Scandinavian countries are in the top 10. And Australia is in the top 10 and Canada is in the top 10. Mm. So this makes you think. Indeed. They don't even have much sunlight up there during, during six months of the year. <laughs> no, so imagine. But then for the other six months, they have nothing but sunlight. <laughs> right, so exactly. it's just, it's very extreme there. <laughs> I, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about rhetoric. Yes. Talk about persuasion, which is yes, another, yes. An, another aspect of, of, of your inquiry, your, your curiosity, your line of work. How does that fit in, if at all, to what we were just talking about, to this notion of liberty? Is, mm. there a, is there a link or is it something completely separate? Well, there is a link, but it's a quite elaborate one. I first got interested in the classical theory of rhetoric and its uses in later cultures through looking at the politics of Renaissance city-states, which of course were highly democratic politics. Of course, they were patriarchal politics. We're only talking about a grand council of heads of families. But if you go to any of the city republics of Tuscany, even nowadays, you see these gigantic halls, particularly in Venice, which contain the electorate of the city. And when they meet in council, this is the group that determines war and peace and levels of taxation and so forth. So there's a kind of direct ruling. Now, 
how do they actually operate? Well, speeches are made, and sometimes these speeches lasted several days. The council would be in session for several days, while questions of war and peace in particular could be determined by the popolo. But of course, the, the quality which is absolutely at a premium is eloquent public speaking. You also have to have a loud voice, and you also have to know how to move people's emotions. You know how to marshal an argument, the optimum way to organize an argument. All of these questions were the ones that purported to be answered in the Roman rhetorical tradition. The Roman rhetorical tradition was more about judicial rhetoric than deliberative rhetoric. It was not so much a rhetoric for deliberative assemblies. But in its revival in the Renaissance, the question of how to persuade a multitude came to be absolutely fundamental. And of course, there are two arenas in which you're trying to persuade your fellow citizens. And the other is the 12 good men and true who are trying a court case. Mm -hmm. they, are, they are the ultimate arbiters. You've got to persuade them to see things your way. Uh, so I got very interested in the, the genre of textbooks in antiquity, which purported to show you how to move a jury um, or a judge or set of judges, it would have been in Rome, or a jury in this country or in my country, or how to move a representative assembly. Now, you could say this is a thoroughly sinister skill because, um, as Aristotle would put it, this is where logos stops, where reasoning stops, and pathos takes over the rousing of the emotions. And they want to be able to say, yes, but what we're doing is rousing the emotions for the right course of action, or rousing the emotions in favor of the correct verdict. Um, so there's a constant tension there. But I became very interested in the role of that notion of persuasion in, in um, Renaissance culture. And I, I've written two books about it now. Shall I say a word about them? Because um, I first got interested in this in relation to the all-out attack on rhetorical argument that was launched in the scientific revolution. You could say that the scientific revolution of the 17th century was in part an attack on this kind of rhetorical culture, because what it sought to do was to tie truth not to persuasion, but to certainty. Mm -hmm. And to want truth to be, as it were, algorithmic, that there would be certain principles that were laid down, which were principles of reasoning. And if these were correctly followed, then you arrived at truths which could not be debated on the other side. Although, ironically, Galileo used these wonderful rhetorical devices in his guidance. And he, and he, he writes dialogue. Yes. Now, he, of course, is a Renaissance philosopher, and he's p passionately interested in the fact that, as the rhetoricians always say, and we still think this in a court of law, there are two sides to the question. So there's a case for the prosecution, but there's a case for the defense, and both may have a lot of logos on their side. We've got to hear this out. And then we've got to see how to weigh that. And of course, that's what he's interested in doing. But of course, that's not what Descartes is interested in doing. That's what not, not what Hobbes is interested in doing, what Leibniz is interested in doing. These people um, are mathematicians, all of them, and they want to privilege mathematics as the model of knowledge. So what they want is axioms which lead to certainty. So there's a total repudiation of the idea that knowledge might not have that form, that it might be that there's always the possibility of arguing on the other side, and that the relationship of persuasion to truth is there in the rhetorical tradition because it's there in our theory of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But what we did was to reject that model of knowledge. 
in favour of this, as I'm calling it, algorithmic idea that knowledge should be tied to certainty. Well, if you look at Spinoza, right, I mean, if you look at the ethics, you're deliberately invoking a mathematical structure for exactly this Absolutely. reason. It's, it's almost like a slap in the face to any, any attempt at rhetorical device. That's what it is, of course. Yeah. Historically, it is the historic slap in the face. And he says, more geometrica, that, that ethics has to be done in the manner of geometry. Yeah. So that sounds ludicrous to a Renaissance philosopher. So I wrote a book about the collapse of rhetoric in the face of this and centered it on the figure of Hobbes. Who, has, who is a mighty rhetorician, but who is using it against um, rhetorical culture. But now I've written a second book in which, which is about dramaturgy, because it seems to me that in Renaissance culture, the greatest arena for rhetoric and the presentation of many voices around some issue is the drama. And indeed, if you ask yourself, why did it happen in the English language, that the teaching of rhetoric in schools, which is the Renaissance revival of classical antiquity, if there's one thing which is directly revived, it is Roman rhetoric as what's fundamentally taught in the schools and the universities. Then if you ask yourself, well, is it an accident that only a generation later you had the greatest efflorescence of English writings of a dramatic kind? There's never been anything like it. Mm. So in one generation, you have Ben Jonson and Shakespeare and Webster and Tuner and Marlowe and on and on it goes. You cannot replicate that in any period of English language writing. But it is exactly the period in which rhetoric was seen to be the fundamental um, human science. And so I got interested in the relation of rhetoric to dramaturgy and I chose Shakespeare. Why not go for the top? Indeed. <laughs> and so what I find is that in a number of his plays, and at a certain point in his intellectual development, um, the plays that he wants to write are judicial in the sense that they draw systematically on the principles of argument laid down in the rhetorical handbooks of antiquity. And it's now impossible for me not to believe that he either had an extraordinary memory for his schooling, which would, of course, have been centered on these rhetorical handbooks, which he would have known by heart, or that he had one of them open on the desk as he was writing. And the two things which the rhetoricians tell you um, are important and you need them are here's two predicaments you could be in. There's something that you want me to believe, and it's false. But what they are interested in is not truth, it's in seeming truth, what they call the very similis, the seeming to be true. How can you make something which is false seem true? So the rhetoricians say, oh, well, we'll, well, we'll do that. We'll, we, can show you, we can show you how to do that. And they have a number of very precise rules about how to make the false seem true. Now think of Shakespeare and the great drama in which there is a figure whose whole purpose is to make the false seem true. And this is the figure of Iago in Othello. He wants Othello to believe that his wife is having an adulterous affair. It's false. But he makes Othello believe that it's true. How does he do it? Well, he does it according to all the rules that are laid out in these classical handbooks. If you read the classical handbook and then you read Iago, you find that you're reading the classical handbook again, but turned into this extraordinary verse. Now, here's the other dilemma you might be in. There's something that you want me to believe is true, 
and it is true, but at the moment nobody believes it's true. So the rhetoricians say, oh yeah, that's quite common. Um, the question is how to make the truth seem true. It is true, but no one believes it true. We've got to make it seem true. The fact that it is true is not actually what's important. How do you make the truth seem true? Well, now consider the dilemma of the ghost in Hamlet. He's just been murdered, but nobody believes he's been murdered. Everyone believes that he was stung by a serpent. He's got to make Hamlet, his son, believe the truth, which no one currently believes. How does he do that? So the rhetoricians say, oh, well, we can, we can take care of that. Now, if you read the ghost's great speeches to Hamlet, you find you're reading these rhetorical textbooks. It's but this notion of making the truth seem true, or, or bringing the truth to light, or, or however one wants to say it, presumably this very notion would be anathema to these rationalist philosophers they hate that we were talking about before, yeah. because the truth, the truth is, is perspicuous, of course. Yes, two and two is four is the paradigm case of a truth. Right, and anyone who hobbies. can't see it must, well, must I'm have sorry. a clouded mind. And, uh, well, you just haven't, you don't, well, then they think, they think, okay, well, you know, let's just tell you about numbers, and then you'll see that this is a paradigm of truth. So they are, you see, you could think that our culture went in a wrong direction here, because very often it's important that we should be able to make the truth seem true. How, does it, how do we make it seem to be true, especially if people don't believe it to be true? That seems to be an important question to ask. And looking at contemporary society, and I know this is not um, the thrust of this last book or the, or the previous book on rhetoric, but nonetheless as somebody who is interested both in the public space and the social space, in the powers of persuasion simultaneously, um, do you think that as a society uh, there has been a precipitous drop in our rhetorical abilities, our collective rhetorical mm, abilities? That's such an interesting question. Well, in both our countries, we're brought up to think yes, because we think of the extraordinary oratorical powers that were brought to bear in the writing of the American Constitution, in the debating of that Constitution, uh, and how those powers were valued, and how important it was to present this right. And of course, these were persuasive efforts, and you can read them in print, because both the Anti-Federalist Papers and the Federalist Papers are telling us two views about the Constitution. It's very interesting to read the Anti-Federalists. They have extremely strong arguments to offer about states' rights and mm. the danger of arbitrary power if the, if the Republic is too large. Madison has got to reply to these. Both of these are densely rhetorical texts. And in England, we're used to the idea that um, when quite frequently matters of state were decided on the floor of the House of Commons, these skills were of paramount importance. Now, they're very rarely decided there, just as in uh, in the case in this country, things aren't really decided on the floor of Congress. So I think we feel that these skills in deliberative assemblies have atrophied. Whether they've atrophied in the courts, I don't know. Um, but it would be interesting to know if courts train young lawyers in these forensic skills in the way that they were trained classically and in the Renaissance uh, in the books that purport to tell you how to do it.
But it seems to me that there's another aspect uh, that might get lost with an associated lack of, of these particular skills. So th let's suppose. Let's suppose that there has been some degree of widespread atrophying of, of these skills. It not only means, uh, which is linked to all sorts of things, sociological aspects, there's not as much of a need, deliberative mm. assemblies, all the rest of this that, that you've said. Perhaps uh, some aspects of public education. Or I never know when I'm talking to a British person what the word public means when I combine <laughs> it with education, but you know, state education, state education widespread yes. education, or however one yes. wants to look at it. Um, but you were speaking before of this ability to to create arguments, to look at things from both sides of the story. Yes. And I submit to you that there might be an aspect of tolerance that is associated with that. Yes. If, if, you, if you develop skills necessary to be able to present um, uh, a position from both sides, yes. then that enhances the likelihood that you will start looking at positions in a less black and white way yeah. and you will yourself be able to do that. So there might be an argument that rhetorical skills are linked to a broader intellectual development which is associated with a certain sense of, of tolerance. Is that, is that a fair... I like uh, that very sense? much. I mean, let me be frank with you. I think that um, um, Anglophone culture went off the rails in the 17th century in this particular respect. And the idea that um, we should tie knowledge to certainty and that what we should be trying to do is to make sure that we can move from premises to conclusions in a form that leaves no opening for debate. That image of public debate, and indeed that self-image of philosophy, seemed to me profoundly destructive. If you think of an earlier phase in the writing of especially moral and political philosophy, it was very common for, for um, such works to be written in the form of dialogues. Uh, and why is that? Well, because there are two sides to the question. And so you can think of these dialogues even to a quite late stage in humanist culture. I think of David Hume's dialogue um, on natural religion, in which four or five figures come together to debate the existence of God. And it's quite well understood um, that there are different points of view, and that, of course, one person leaves because he can't tolerate this, but the others are tolerant. The reason they're tolerant is that they recognize that the truth is not all going to be in one direction. Now, it seems to me, uh, in my professional and personal experience, but very much in my professional experience as sitting in committees as a senior academic in different universities, that is extremely rare for the setup to be one in which it's completely clear what the outcome is going to be. We're all deliberating. Many of us have different points of view. We come to think in the course of the meeting, well, I may be going to vote in a different way here. I hadn't really appreciated that side of it. It may not be that I didn't know that, but I didn't weight that correctly. You went into the meeting with an open mind. Well, Goodness. it seems to me that that, of course, <laughs> might be very rare. I don't want to romanticize this. I'm actually just making a point about the theory of knowledge. I think the range of circumstances in which we find ourselves in, in a situation in which it's natural for an outsider to say, well, you know, there are several, there are several points of view about this which are pretty much equally rational. So the notion that rationality is itself, as it were, algorithmic, um, doesn't answer to a great number of the circumstances in which we find ourselves making decisions. Of course not. So I think it would be a kind of emotional maturity in us to give up this picture of uh, what it really is like to debate in morals and in politics and in committees where we're trying to make collective deliberations come to a decision. Yeah. 
let me um, pick up on the comment that you made about going off the rails a little bit and extrapolate from there to some another comment that you had made towards the end of Liberty Before Liberalism when you mm. talk about the, how you see your job, the role of an intellectual historian. And you mentioned that you, the analogy that you chose was this analogy of being an archaeologist of, of yeah. ideas, yeah. Uh, of, uh, of, of great intellectual ideas, some of which, hence the archaeology reference, some of which might have been cast aside or thrown by the wayside or mm. forgotten or left over. Um, and you look at it as an aspect of your job to examine these ideas, to dust them off, as it were, mm. to bring them to light. Um, and it seems to me that serves two purposes. One is to reassess these ideas in, our, uh, in a contemporary view or with, with uh, given our understanding of subsequent events that have happened over the centuries, um, because maybe there's something to them, yes. after all. Um, and the other aspect is that it, it might force us to rethink not only our fundamental assumptions, but even our level of awareness that we have made such assumptions. That's one of the things that happens, of course, when you start making assumptions. You don't even realize that you're Absolutely. making assumptions. Yes. Do you still look at yourself that way? Is that an accurate uh, Yes, it's part, part of how I see myself. I, I suppose that I also want to try to make sure that I'm not being philistine about the task of the historian. If I think of the kinds of history that truly matter to me, thinking of intellectual history very broadly, I'm very interested in the history of art and architecture, and I have more than a passing interest in the history of music. So if we think of all of these as kinds of, of history, then we are just as historians of literature, where it's a much more familiar thought, going to valorize what we study in and for itself. Um, historians of art in this country get a better hearing for this than they do in my country. It's a very striking fact how important the history of art is in this country. And I want to associate myself with the view that it would be Philistine to suppose that the point of the past is um, to help us in some completely utilitarian way. It is to enlarge our imaginations and to um, enable us to walk through many buildings where we learn things all the time, to get out of ourselves, to get out of our own society, to think in larger ways about all these works of the human spirit. So that all sounds like a pile of cliches, and it is, but we've somehow got to face those cliches and make something of them. And I say that because uh, my work, insofar as it's been about political and moral theory, has commonly been denounced as um, antiquarian. That's to say, I'm very interested in the history of moral and political philosophy, but I'm not interested in, in the history because I think that it's talking about what we talk about now. And it's a very common assumption in certain parts of our intellectual community that the value of the past is at best a mirror. And we look into the past and we see ourselves and we see questions that we still ask and maybe it might be interesting to formulate that question as they did, but basically we're, we're using these people to help us with our questions. Uh, as Derek Parfit once beautifully put it, we're grave robbers. 
And I am not interested in being a grave robber. I think that the sensibility of the historian is to try to study the past insofar as we can manage, and of course there are huge philosophical questions attached to this, but in its own terms, and try to see it from their point of view. If we do that then, what I think we do find is exactly what you've said, is that in our modern culture, and perhaps also in antiquity, we find many paths not taken. And we tend to write the history as the history of the winners. We write wars as the history of the winners, but we also write the history of our culture as the history of the winners. But did the winners always deserve to win is a huge question that historians ought to have at the forefront of their mind if they're working on anything which is a product of the human spirit and intelligence. So we've talked a lot today about a particular way of thinking about freedom where I think that we're not the winners. We lost sight of something. And it's quite easy to provide strong historical explanations of why we lost sight of a particular way of thinking about freedom and citizenship. But it, it is deeper and more powerful, I've come to think, than what we've currently got on offer. So we ought to be recovering it. We ought to treat it as buried treasure. We ought to be bringing it to the surface, dusting it down. When we do, we find that much in the historical texts that offer us this moral vision is awful. I mean, they're very sexist, they're very militaristic. We don't have to take the whole package. Oh, they might be guideposts or signposts they're along si the way. Yes, they are aids to thinking outside our own box. And there's a perpetual tendency in philosophy for us to treat our interpretation, our reading of certain concepts as the canonical reading, because it is for us. And once you began to doubt um, our way of thinking about freedom, which I do, you'd start to doubt other things because, of course, all these terms are interconnected and interdefined. You'd start to think differently about rights. You'd start to think differently about equality. So you begin to reshape uh, a moral world for yourself. You're not, of course, replicating a past moral world. You're taking elements from this which you might not have thought about. I would never have thought about this. Um, and trying to reinsert them into our world. And I've come to think that that's a very important part of the intellectual historian's task. It's, it's interesting because I'm, I am starting to draw parallels and perhaps I'm, I'm, uh, I'm drawing too many. I, I, I do have a, a weakness of doing, perhaps trying to, as you said at the beginning of this discussion, make uh, symmetries or at least allude to symmetries which may not exist. So, so indulge me for just a moment. But it seems like there's a bit of a connection with what we're talking about and, and the rhetoric aspect, vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the distinction between the humanities and the natural sciences. Yes. So um, let, me, let me be very concrete to begin with, with a concrete example, and then let's try, let me try to take you to, where I, to, to the point that I'm trying to make. If you do a poll of people uh, within an academic community, and you ask them, what is the point of studying Aristotle? You will find widely divergent views depending on who you ask. Mm. If you ask philosophers and you, you ask perhaps political theorists, um, they will be very supportive of the idea. If you were to ask a physicist, should we be studying Aristotle? Mm. Uh, for They might say, well, that might be interesting historically, like studying the Crusades might be interesting historically, or, mm. or studying all sorts of things, the Peloponnesian Wars. But, but uh, 
but frankly, that won't help you become a better physicist at all. Sure. And the reason they're saying that is we, in the natural sciences, we make progress. Mm. And this is this rationalist view. And of course, there's a lot of evidence for that within their domain. No one is suggesting that we go back to Aristotelian physics. But it is a perspective, it is a mindset, if you will, that we proceed according to these, this, uh, this well-established framework on the road towards certainty and the truth. Mm. Um, and, and thus, we don't redress these issues. We don't go back and say, well, what would Aristotle have thought of that? Or, mm. we, we don't talk about that at all. However, when you look at, at, the, uh, at the humanities and you ask, what is social justice? What mm. is freedom? What is the good life? What mm. is truth, what is beauty, and so forth. These are questions which arguably one has to continually address. Mm. And the reason one has to continually address it is because you can't have, not only can you not have it because we're not clever enough, you, you can't in principle have certainty because they are defined with respect to societies of people, they are defined with mm. respect to our previous understanding of the past. And so it is uh, endemic to that very line of reasoning or that body of work or that field of study to be constantly going back and redressing these questions, which means that there is a constant motivation to do precisely what you're doing, to, to mm -hmm. look at it from this archaeological perspective, bring these other ideas up to light which might have now been forgotten and, mm. and deemed I I irrelevant. And so it, it, uh, it seems as if one can put this in, in a, a somewhat larger framework that part and parcel of being um, a responsible, if you will, or, or um, active member of the humanities is to do precisely this. That mm -hmm. once you start believing your own press and believing you have everything worked out mm. and not redressing uh, these issues over and over again in the widest possible way, mm. you are not doing justice to your profession in a very, very dissimilar way than, uh, than a scientist. You are, in fact, acting more like the natural scientist to your particular profession. Do you see where I'm what I I'm absolutely saying? take this. Yes. Well, I find those very congenial comments. I, I would want to go further and say that um, in this dialectical relationship between us and the history of our culture, we see very many continuities, of course, uh, and we can focus on them should we choose. But I think it's more valuable to focus on discontinuities, and for two reasons. And one is to do with the contemporary state of philosophy, um, where despite efforts to undermine it, which you might think had been philosophically convincing, the fact is that conceptual analysis still reigns. So that questions are asked about how we should really think about freedom, how we should really think about rights, how we should really think about justice, I've come to feel that um, why we need an historical approach to questions of that kind is that there is no canonical reading to be given of, of these concepts. Of course, if we're talking about the idea of freedom, we must in some way be talking about human agency and choice. So we, we must have some common subject matter, but at some level, so banal that What's most important is what we erect upon that, what analysis we give of the concept. Now, I'm saying that what has happened in contemporary political philosophy is that a, a, an analysis of the concept uh, in terms of um, 
negative freedom and absence of interference. And of course, interference is a very complex notion, and so is coercion. So you can do the analysis for a very long time. What counts as coercion? What counts as interference? These are not simple questions. You can um, amuse yourself for a, lot, for a long time here. But what will not emerge is the concept of freedom. What will emerge is a concept, and that can always be um, confronted with an alternative reading. Likewise with the theory of rights, it seems to me we've come to a very strange pass with thinking that a right is simply a moral claim. It gives us extremely long and lengthening lists of rights where the notion that a right might be the correlative of duty so that we could say that's a right because we can identify someone whose duty it is that there should be such a recipient. It's a very different way of thinking about rights. But what makes us think that our way is the canonical way? There's a perpetual tendency for us to isolate a concept, give it an analysis, and treat that as canonical. Because, of course, it then fits into all our other ways of thinking. The role of the intellectual historian in relation to philosophy is continually to try to denature these concepts, continually to try to make you see that what looks like the necessary might be the contingent. And some of the most imaginative intellectual history of our time uh, has been done by people, and indeed, to cite the great name Michel Foucault, using this metaphor of archaeology, the archaeology of knowledge, one of his great texts, to take a concept that you might think it, it cannot but be a natural concept and could not have a history, and he chose sex and then began to write the history of sex. And, of course, the whole thing is socially constructed. How much of our world is socially constructed such that we have various readings of it, and how much is not, is something that he made an absolutely central question for the human sciences. But it's remarkable how we've moved back into, as it seems to me, a phase in which we're not very hospitable to that notion. Hmm. I would like us to be very hospitable Right. to that notion of how much is socially constructed. And then once it becomes canonical, um, not only does it become uh, the only way tautologically to, to, to look mm. at something, but it, um, there's a rigidity in time. It's not just it's the only way right now to look at this. It becomes invoked as, as the, the only way one could possibly have looked at, oh, of course. at, at these things in the past. Yes. And here's where this notion of... Um, uh, well, I shouldn't say here's where. Th this notion of discontinuity that, that you were mentioning, I think, is very important because it's almost like a deliberate rupture. You're yes. looking for ways of, of actually probing to see uh, when this has been uh, embraced as a social construct and what other things might actually come to the fore. Absolutely. And it seems like there's a tendency for people also to, to how shall I put it, I guess the metaphor would be to airbrush things. I mean, when I read your, yes. your, your, your book... Uh, about uh, which was just re-released not too long ago, a few years ago, about Hobbes and republicanism and so yes. forth. You talk about your motivations um, to look at his particular theory uh, in terms of a theory which, at least in, in his history, evolved as you go through various different works. Definitely, and also yes. was a response to particular conditions at a particular time. So you are you're yeah. humanizing him to some extent. And one of yeah. the things that happens when you, you, you make something canonical and you airbrush it, you put someone on a pedestal somewhere yes. and you, you, you have this perfect, uh, perfectly written text which has never changed and emerged yes. like uh, Athena from the head of Zeus. Here it is, this beautiful, yes. beautiful work. And so to some extent, I, it seems like you're, you're determined as a, as a method to be humanizing these people, to be looking at them as products of their time and their effort to show the inherent possibility of dynamism of yes. their ideas. Well, that is exactly the point. And leads on to another of my hobby horses, but maybe there are 
a couple of things I should say about that. And the first is simply a little piece of autobiography, um, uh, uh, which takes us very far back into our conversation, right to the beginning. Uh, I'm astonished now by the extent to which, in Wittgenstein's phrase, there was a bewitchment by concepts when I was first of all writing about these questions about freedom in the Renaissance, because the reason I couldn't make sense of it was that I understood freedom to be, in some way, absence of coercion. Uh, that was how I'd been brought up to think about the concept, and so I'm thinking, well, that's, that's what we mean by freedom. So where's the interference here? I can't make sense of what they're saying. Hmm. So I tried to make sense of what they were saying in the light of a concept which was not their concept. And it wasn't until I came to understand their concept from the inside and contrast it with our, as it looked to me to start with, canonical version of the concept, that I really came to think, well, we have a, a pluralism here. We simply do. So but there is a clear example, maybe, um, Maybe I'm particularly obtuse, but maybe not. Maybe there is a bewitchment by very powerful concepts so that we make them canonical. And we must not do that. Then the other point you make, which of course connects closely with this, is that the approach I've always tried to adopt as an intellectual historian is to get away so far as possible from the idea of these deliverances of reason which we find encased in the books of the very great philosophers. And I've wanted to say, think of these texts as interventions in some pre-existing dialogue. There must be one. We may not know what it is. Sure. Uh, and of course, it's a consequence of my approach that you might find that there's less that you can know than you supposed. So we may never be able to find out whom Plato was really addressing, opposing, satirizing. We, you know, it may not be possible. But that's that's only to point. say we can't know him as well as we thought because you can't know all that by reading the text. You have to know right. extra textual matters all along the line to be able to answer questions of that form. I eventually came to think that these are the hermeneutically interesting questions. So what seemed to me the interesting questions about Hobbes's theory of freedom in the state is, well, you know, what, why is he so upset? Who's he trying to discredit? What's the argument? Why this book now? Why does he stop writing his physics in order to write this? What's the crisis? So that if you very nicely call that humanizing them, I'm trying to supply these people with underlying purposes and with motivations, and trying to show you that once you've recovered those motivations, well, you'll understand the text as the text was written. I'm fading. Uh, well, I was oh, just we about, I oh, was wow. right about ready to wrap up. I had one last question, which Well, was, you could take that one out then. <laughs> We've was, gone so much longer than I expected. Well, my, my, my one question is, uh, and I think you may have supplied the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, yeah. is, is there anything left that you would like to add? No, that last thought really enabled me to say something about historical method, which is very important to me, oh. which is um, what Collingwood liked to call the logic of question and answer. Don't think of these texts as anything except answers to questions. And now what is interpretation? It's finding out what the question might have been to which the text is the answer. It's an extraordinarily luminous thought, that, I think. It's not going to be one question, and that's why it's going to be so complicated. But what's this person's question? What's the problem? Or what intervention are they making? So whom are they agreeing with? Whom are they dismissing? Whom are they satirizing? Uh, whom are they ignoring? All of these come to the fore. And especially, you know, whom are they ignoring? Whom are they trying to discredit? What are they trying to, to um, as you earlier said, airbrush out? So Hobbes is trying to airbrush out the Republican theory of freedom. Why? Well, because he thinks that the most 
um, successful and probably the most respectable form of constitution is an absolute monarchy. These people have said the only legitimate form of constitution is a democracy. So he's got to airbrush them out. Clinton, it's been a very, very enchanting conversation. Thank you well, very thank much you, for your time. It's you been a very pleasure. Much. Thank Tremendous you. pleasure. Thank you. Terrific. Skillful. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the History of Ideas, along with separate discussions with Stefan Collini, Martin Jay, Darren McMahon, and Pankish Mishra. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.